Matthew chapter 12. And when we finished off Matthew 11, uh, we encountered one of those just very famous passages of Jesus appealing to join his path, the, the path that would allow you to exchange uh, burden for freedom. Uh, the, the things prior to that, though, <clears throat> were not good. Jesus had encountered some doubts from uh, someone very close to him, John the Baptist. Uh, Jesus had encountered disbelief from the cities, uh, really the hometowns of the very disciples that had, you know, chosen, that he had chosen to, to follow him most closely. And then we have that balanced by this very positive appeal toward the benefits of belief. In chapter 12, we have a similar setup in that we're going to see this, this general notion of uh, doubt and disbelief kind of crystallized to a more uh, pointed actual opposition from the people that uh, were following him. There were, uh, in fact, the, the messages become more and more divisive so that you have people that are receiving what he's teaching, and then you have people that are directly in opposition. And so um, we'll see some of that uh, today. And then in the latter part of the chapter, which we probably won't get to today, uh, you'll see the, uh, uh, the balance, the, the, the good appeal again, uh, like we did in chapter 11. So let's uh, jump on in uh, with verse one. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what it is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So this raises lots of questions, right? So it's not that big a deal that the disciples were hungry, uh, that they were in a field of grain, that they were plucking some of the heads of presumably wheat to eat. Uh, by the way, has anyone ever eaten raw wheat? What does it taste like? We have some <laughs> Okay, I've, I've done this. Um, when I was in uh, when I was in college, um, I was with this touring group um, of singers. Uh, I was not the singer. I was the guy with the sound machine uh, soundboard. But uh, we we stayed in people's homes and sang in churches and so forth. And uh, we were in Wyoming, and there's lots of wheat in Wyoming. And the people we stayed with, they were farmers, and they had all this wheat. And the guy said, "Well, here, try some." So literally, you you. You kind of do it like this, and and the husk or whatever comes off, and you chew it up. So if you imagine taking a piece of chewing gum that's just totally lost its flavor, right, and then pop in about four wheat thins and chew that up together, that's kind of what it tastes like. And after a while, it kind of goes down, and, and you're like, okay, I'm not sure I'll do that again, but it was fine. Right. But if I was hungry, maybe I would have done that and 
So here we are, the disciples are plucking heads of grain to eat. And the Pharisees saw it, which my, my question is, what were they doing in the grain fields? Just walking along, especially on the, somebody said it, on the Sabbath, right? So just from this, these opening sentences, you can see the tone, right? I mean, back then you couldn't, you know, bug somebody's office or watch your social media account. Uh, you just kind of followed along and see how you could catch them in a mistake or something that could, uh, you know, that could be sensationalized or, or whatever. So, so they think they they think they've caught him. And it says, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, "Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath." Now, did the Bible say anything about not plucking heads of wheat and eating it? Well, not really. I mean, it does say you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? I mean. That is, that is what it says. But it didn't say you can't eat, right? In fact, they, when they gathered manna, right, on Friday was the only day that they could gather twice the amount, right? Because all the other days, if you gathered more than what you could use, it would just go bad. But on, on Friday, you could gather enough so that you'd have enough to eat on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus launches into the defense. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So you can go back to the Old Testament, you can read this story. So it's kind of interesting the timing. So David, at this point, has been anointed king, but he's not actually king yet. Saul is still king, but so he's kind of on the run. He's, he's in this area. The, the, the priests, presumably, have had it with Saul, and they're wanting to support this newly anointed king who wasn't yet king. And they the bread of the presence. This was the bread that was put in the tabernacle, right? We we learned about the tabernacle in, in Exodus, and we learned about all the things that were there. And one of the things that was inside the tabernacle was uh, where you put the bread of the presence. Well, they ate it. So he's saying, first of all, his first offense was, well, okay, but... Look what David did. David broke the law as you would have presented it. So point number one. Verse five. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? In other words, the priests themselves eat the bread and they're not committing any big sin. Verse 6, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of 
the Sabbath. There's something greater going on. So there's these three lines of defense, and uh, Wearsby makes the point that Jesus has appealed as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. And of course, he he is that king. And so, especially this this passage where he refers to David, he's identifying himself very closely with David, who was king, but not yet king, right? Well, Jesus is king, but he hadn't yet been recognized as king. But he knew a law that was a greater law, so to speak. And um, he passed all off. He says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So by this time, you get the idea that the Sabbath has been really perverted by the Pharisees. Uh, why was a Sabbath created or instituted? I mean, on the one hand, it was as a reminder of God's work in creation and the fact that he rested on that day. But it was really written so that man could rest. It was written for us. I mean, the, the Sabbath was a day of rest for us. So this is the main point. You guys have just drifted so far. You, for, you know, yeah, you, you're just missing the whole point. We can imagine they must have really loved this, right? <laughs> Verse 9. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. So he knows that opposition is building. I think it's interesting. It says he went on from there and entered their synagogue. So at this point, he's not shying away from confrontation. They've been following him around. They've been in his turf, so to speak, in the grain fields. And what does he do now? He goes to their turf. Verse 10, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it, law to, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Were they curious about whether it was okay to heal on the Sabbath? Were they really concerned for this guy's welfare? Had they heard of all the healings and they were hopeful that they could talk Jesus into healing this man who had probably been in their synagogue so many times? No. What does it say? So they might accuse him. Again, they've drifted so far. Here is a guy who's been healing you know, the reports have made it. They, they, they know what's going on. He's healing, but are they worried about this guy? You know, could they not have said, Jesus, you know, we're not sure we're on board with everything you're doing. We don't really understand it yet. But there's this guy with this messed up hand. He's always in church. He's really, eh, you know, we can't really do anything for him. We hear that you might be able to, so we'd like for you to heal him. They are not at all worried about this poor guy. He's just a, he's just an excuse, right? He's, they don't care about him at all. Which, this should be a, a tip. If 
if your philosophy and, and or your interpretation of scripture ever gets in the way of you helping somebody, you've probably detoured away from things, right? Verse 11. He said to them, one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Uh, this is a variation of a verse, I think it's back in Deuteronomy, that uh, if you have an ox that falls off into a ditch, um, is it okay to get the ox out? Uh, that presumably, I've not seen an ox, I've seen cows. Um, presumably to get a cow or an ox anywhere you want it to go would require some effort. And if it's in the ditch, would very much require some effort. This would be considered work. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but yet they thought that was okay, right? It's okay to get your ox out. In fact, um, it makes me think of um, uh, my cousin years ago. Um, uh, he was a, a, a just a cool Christian guy, but um, you know, church attendance wasn't maybe a hundred percent goal for him and um, he would kind of quote this he said well you know I had an ox off in the ditch day um, he did have lots of animals on the farm so you know it, it's cool um, but he says of how much more verse 12 of how much more value is a man than a sheep is it lawful to, get a, to do good on the Sabbath so Again, stripping away all their pretense and just, you know, you know, it says prophet, priest, and king. I'm not, I guess maybe the prophet and the king part would be most like an attorney, but this seems very, you know, like a ringer you'd see on the best crime drama or uh, law drama or whatever. Um, how much more value is a man than a sheep? Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. And the Pharisees went out rejoicing. No. <laughs> Verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Yes. I haven't thought about that, Julie, but I like it. I like it. How much more value is a man than a sheep? Spoken by the Good Shepherd. Excellent. The Pharisees went out and just conspired against him how to destroy him. One commentator noted with, you know, it's, it isn't an ironic that they are going to get so bent out of shape about the fourth commandment that they have no problem breaking the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Sin will mess you up, right? Sin will, I mean, at the in our most gracious, generous appraisal of the Pharisees, you would at least say they had a big blind spot, right? 
they were so focused on the Sabbath, they forgot it. There's this whole do not kill somebody clause. Verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. So I, th I find this little change of tactic in interesting, right? So to begin that passage, he went to their synagogue. And now, when he's really put them in their place, in their own place, right? This was a road win for Jesus. Then he backs off. But of course, many followed him, it says, and he healed them all, but he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And beginning in verse 18, we have the, you know, Matthew being a, a Jew writing to Jews, um, quotes the Old Testament extensively. So in this passage um, through verse 21 is the longest quotation of the Old Testament uh, in Matthew. So this is the, the longest passage. And he quotes Isaiah saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will he nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. In chapter 41 of Isaiah, we hear Israel called out as the servant. But then as you continue to read and as you get into chapter 42 of Isaiah, the tone changes and you, and you realize that that designation gets coned down to not just a nation, but a, a person. And so here we have this chosen servant and Matthew is saying, this is the promised chosen servant. He is doing what he said he would do. Now, remember, between Malachi and the, the onset of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, there was a lot of turmoil going on, right? The Maccabean revolt uh, and uh, people were thinking, hey, you know, God is moving. Um, we're going to bring those Romans down. And everybody had this perception that when the Messiah came, um, everything was going to be made right. He was going to come in victory and judgment. And remember, that's what John the Baptist was expecting. And, and now Matthew's saying, actually, if you read a little deeper, he was actually promised to come just like he's coming. What you guys are seeing, this is the way it was. And contrary to this confrontational message he was doing with the Pharisees and, and certainly their tone of being militant and and, you know, aggressive and, and, you know, attacking. He's saying, a bruised reed I will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. So if we wonder how is it that he is wanting to deal with people who are far from him, who are sinners, who are not following him currently, is it going to be judgment and fire? Or is it going to be with care and compassion? And have you ever tried to start a fire? Right. 
you know? And at first you're, I mean, it's tiny. It's like from a match and you're blocking the wind and, and you're trying to get all the conditions right. You might want to blow it on just a little bit, but not too much. And a smoldering wick, he, he's trying to encourage that. He's trying to bring it to life, not maybe how many people had pictured. Verse 22. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Wow, that's a verse. How much worse can you be? You can't see, you can't hear, and you have a demon. That's a bad day. That's worse than any day I've had. That's a bad life. He made the Bible, right? He made the Bible, not by name, but he made the Bible. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. That's a lot. Appropriately, verse 23, what does it say? And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? The Greek there is they were beside themselves. They literally were out of, they were, which is a strange phrase, right? They were literally beside themselves. Like, you see that? I didn't see that. Did not see that coming. The people were amazed. But when the Pharisees heard it, once again, they said, hallelujah, great to see God's work on earth. No, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. <sighs> I don't know what Jesus did. To me, it would be just shake your head like, really? Really? Knowing their thoughts, verse 25, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. First quoted by Lincoln, of course, in Civil War days, saying, you know, we shouldn't be fighting ourselves. Once again, just like in the first section about having to explain himself to the Pharisees, here he is again. Point number one, if I was really doing this with Satan, would I be taking away the demon when I already had this guy? No. A kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. So verse 26, and if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. What sense does that make? Verse 27, point number two. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? In other words, we know your colleagues are some Pharisees that are casting out demons, presumably by the Spirit of God. Well, if they're doing it and you're saying that's good, then why not? Why am I not doing it to that same credit? Point number three, verse 28, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, 
then the kingdom has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first finds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words, I can't cast out demons unless I've already dealt with the one in charge of the demons. So the fact that I've dealt with the one in charge of the demons is why I can plunder his house. Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, you guys need to make a decision. Verse 31, as we lead into one of the more often misunderstood verses in the New Testament, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So we, we've all heard of the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin, right? Blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. We've, we've heard this, right? How many of you people have talked with others who sincerely wonder, have I done this? Have I, have I, have I committed this sin? Have I, you know, I've, I've done some bad stuff. I have said bad stuff. Am I, have I sealed my fate? Well, this is not a complicated thing. So let's, so point number one, of course, this is not talking to believers. This is not talking to Christians, right? What is Jesus saying, John? You know, you're mine, you're in my hand, and no one can take you out. That means you yourself can't take you out, right? There's nothing, I mean, your words are powerless against what Jesus has already done. You're in his hand, even you can't do anything about it. But this particular sin, all the commentators that I read is very plain. They didn't even spend a lot of time on this. This particular thing that Jesus is speaking out really can't be recreated today because the scenario was this. You had Jesus performing miracles that could only have been performed through the power of the Holy Spirit, but the Pharisees are attributing those miracles to Satan, thereby blaspheming the Holy Spirit, saying the things you're doing are not from the Holy Spirit, they're from Satan. And that's how they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. We literally can't do that today. Jesus isn't here among us, and we're not attributing those things to the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So we can't we can't do that. But they could and likely did. Verse 33. Again provoking them to a decision, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by his fruit. 
this um, this is a statement but it's really asking a question you guys decide either what I'm doing is good in which case it's fruit of a tree that's good or what I'm doing is bad and it's fruit of a bad tree and then of course the un spoken part is, of course, what I'm doing is good. Of course, I'm good. You're speaking against that which is good, so therefore you're bad. That's the logic. As he leads in to verse 34, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? Come on, guys. What, I'm, what am I doing? I just healed and released a man who was demon-possessed, couldn't see, couldn't speak. Was that good? Was that good? Of course. You brood of vipers. How dare you? How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So there's a flavor, as we'll go into this next verse or two, of, to me, it sounds almost like a proverb. And one of the things about Proverbs is that they are often descriptive, even more so than being prescriptive. In other words, they don't necessarily, um, it's not like prophecy. It's just describing what reality is. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? I mean, that we're all in that situation, right? Um if I've been churning over something that's maybe make me mad, it's more likely that the words that come out of my mouth are not going to be gentle or dis discreet or discerning or thoughtful, right? Because I'm speaking what the overflow of my heart is at the moment. Verse 35, the good person out of the his good treasure bring forth, brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So this is describing the general state of affairs, right? Now, you can't turn this around in some weird prophetical say and say, well, since you did something bad, then you're not a Christian. That's, that's not what this is saying, right? Um, you can detour very quickly over to Romans 7, and here Paul saying all this stuff that um, I know that nothing good lives in me. That's my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I don't do what I want to do, and, and anyway, he just, you know, we've all been there, right? Oh, why did I say that? Does that mean I'm not a Christian? No. At the end of that same line of verses in Romans 7, praise God, there's Romans chapter 8 where it says, so now there is no, what? There is no condemnation for those who belong in Christ Jesus, right? So don't read into Matthew 33 more than is there, right? He's, Jesus is describing the state of the Pharisees. But verse 36, we'll finish up. I tell you, though, 
On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Again, don't hear more than is there, right? Now, we're going to talk about the day of judgment a lot in the later chapters of Matthew, so we won't go into this a lot. But there is going to be a day of judgment. The big agenda on that day is going to be um, the recognition of those who are gods and those who are not. That's going to be a big part of the agenda. But then there is going to be some accountability uh, of what we did, what we said. Not sure what that totally looks like. Um, I will not be asking for a show of hands if anyone has done anything they regret uh, or if anyone has done anything they regret even after they were saved or if anyone has done anything they regret this morning. But I will say First John says this, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. First John says, we can literally, we do not dread that day, that day of judgment. I don't know how it's going to look. I don't know if there's going to be some grand movie screen showing all the things I've done wrong. I'm going for the not harming the bruised reed and not putting out the smoldering wick approach. I'm counting on that uh, through Jesus and his grace. But John says, we don't need to fear that day. And when, when John says, we don't need to fear that day, we can actually have confidence in that day. I'm, I'm putting my money on that. That's, I'm putting my faith on that. And on what Paul says, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it just makes us think. We thank you for the pictures that you've given us in Matthew of Jesus just walking through the fields. And we just thank you that he's with us, that through him we have life and we don't have to fear anything down the road. That like the Gentiles, we can say our hope is in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.